0: Volume One, Chapter Ten, Part Two of A Popular History of England From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Voice of Landis, Zanesville. You can find it at Voiceoflandis.com. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by Francois Pierre Guillaume Guizot, Chapter Ten, Part Two. Scarcely had Edward left the coasts of England when Bigod and Bohun entered London on the twenty-fourth of August at the head of considerable forces. The strictest discipline prevailed in the ranks of their followers. They went straight to the treasury and deposited their complaints against the arbitrary exactions and the violations of magna charta committed by the king. Then, proceeding to Guildhall, they exhorted the citizens of London to maintain their rights. The young regent, being alarmed, convoked a parliament which abolished the impost upon Wool and decreed that no tax whatever should in future be raised without the consent of the bishops, peers, citizens, and freemen of the kingdom, and that the king should not seize upon any goods without authority of the owners. Orders were sent out to read the Magna Carta in all the churches once a year under pain of excommunication against those who should endeavor to prevent it. This law was to be proclaimed every Sunday in all the churches. This act, signed in London, was sent to Ghent where King Edward was at the time. They demanded that it should be ratified. The barons undertook to join the king in Flanders, or to march against Scotland, where the people had again risen, according to his pleasure. During three days the pride of King Edward resisted. At length he signed the document, promising himself to make all his concessions void afterwards. As soon as they were secure in their victory, the barons set out for Scotland edward needed the support and goodwill of his english subjects for he had gained but little success in flanders after having with difficulty quelled the violent rivalries which had occurred in his fleet between the sailors of the different ports he had found a great number of flemish towns occupied by the french supported by a party powerful in the country itself the count guy had again fallen into the hands of the king of france the flemish and english would often engage in struggles against each other after having fought together against the French, Edward's foreign allies, the Emperor, the Duke of Austria, and the Duke of Brabant, sent no help, believing they had done their share in receiving the subsidies of England. King Edward listened to the overtures of Pope Boniface VIII, who was endeavoring to re-establish peace. He left Guy of Flanders in prison, where the latter, as well as his daughter, afterwards died— he affianced his son edward to isabel of france thus laying the foundation of the misfortune of his lifetime and himself married princess margaret who was then seventeen years of age contenting himself with recovering aquitaine while guyenne still remained in the hands of philip the fair peace being thus concluded edward started on his return to his kingdom where the position of affairs imperatively required his presence the great Scotch nobleman had taken the oath of allegiance to the King of England, but the less powerful ones had not had the honor of accomplishing that act of submission. Sir Malcolm Wallace of Ellerslie had not taken the oath, nor had his second son, William Wallace, who was already outlawed for the murder of an English soldier in consequence of a dispute. He had lived since then in the mountains, but having one day appeared at the market in Linark. He was insulted by an englishman whom he killed he found a friendly shelter and contrived to escape but the house which had protected him was burnt and the mistress of it lost her life wallace swore to wreak a terrible revenge upon the english soon all the adventurers outlaws and bold spirits weary of subjection rallied around wallace at the moment when King Edward started for Flanders, the Scottish leader had already become a dangerous partisan, attacking the English when he met them in small numbers and plundering the country under their authority. His forces were increasing in number. Many noblemen had joined him and were raising their standards in favor of John, King of Scotland. A certain number of powerful noblemen followed them. Robert Bruce himself, grandson of him who had contested the crown against the Beloyal, had come over to the national party. The Pope will absolve me from all the oaths which I have involuntarily sworn in favor of King Edward, said the future deliverer of Scotland. The Earl of Surrey was raising forces in the southern part of the kingdom. When the two armies came in sight of each other near the town of Irvin, in the county of Ayr they were about equal in numbers but the english troops were well drilled and obedient to a single general wallace's army was disorderly divided led by a rival chiefs and little disposed to admit the superiority of an outlaw of low origin no encounter took place on the ninth of july the great scotch noblemen laid down their arms and tendered their submission to king edward one baron alone sir andrew moray of bothwell remained faithful to the National Party, but Wallace took with him a large number of vassals of the noblemen who had surrendered, and his raids upon the territory occupied by the English became bolder and bolder every day. Stirling was seriously threatened by the insurgents. When the earls of Surrey and Cressingham advanced with large forces, the two parties occupied the opposite banks of the Forth. Wallace's position was excellent, and he was offered terms. Tell your masters, he replied to the envoy, that we are not here to parley, but to assert our rights and to deliver Scotland. Let them advance, we are ready. The English hesitated. Surrey deemed the attack dangerous, but Cressingham, like a true financier, was complaining loudly of the ravages made upon the king's treasury by an army which did not fight, and the general yielded. At daybreak, on the 11th of September, 1297, the English army began marching across the bridge. It was narrow, and the soldiers passed over it slowly. When one portion of the army had crossed, Wallace caused the bridge to be occupied by a detachment, and he attacked the English, which had not yet had time to form in order of battle. The slaughter was fearful. Among the dead bodies was found... Pressingham, who was odious to the Scotch by reason of the severity of his administration, his savage enemies flayed him in order to preserve his skin in remembrance of the revenge. Surrey retreated with the remainder of his forces, but Wallace's success had delivered Scotland for the time being. The castles were surrendering in every direction the popular champion entered northumberland and pillaged the english territory while famine kept him away from scotland when he reappeared in his country laden with plunder an assembly of noblemen awarded to him the title of governor of the kingdom and commander-in-chief of king john's forces beloyle still imprisoned in england smiled bitterly at this use of his name Meanwhile King Edward had recrossed the sea, and his orders for the levying of a large army had preceded him. In the eyes of the conqueror of Scotland the insurrection led by Wallace was a rebellion, not a patriotic movement. Scarcely had he set foot in England than he marched towards the north. Having halted for a while at York where he was to have convened a parliament, the barons who had formerly placed themselves at the head of the popular resistance came and met him to demand the ratification of the concessions granted at Ghent. By and by, cried Edward, I have no leisure time just now. I must first of all reduce the Scotch rebels to obedience. And he swore before three bishops that he would occupy himself with the liberties of his English subjects when he should have riveted the chains of his Scottish subjects. Bigot and Bowen were satisfied with this promise and followed him into Scotland. The king's vessels were delayed. He was detained between Edinburgh and Linlithgow. When an insurrection broke out in his camp, the Welsh troops threatened to leave him and go over to the Scotch. "'I care little,' said Edward. "'If my enemies join my enemies, I will punish them all in one day.' THE PROVISIONS BEGAN TO RUN SHORT, AND A RETREAT WAS SPOKEN OF WHEN THE BISHOP OF DURHAM WAS WARNED ON THE 10TH OF JULY, 1298, THAT THE SCOTCH ARMY WAS ENCAMPED IN THE FOREST OF Falkirk, AND WAS PREPARING TO ATTACK THE ENGLISH TROOPS. GLORY BE TO GOD, CRIED EDWARD, HE HAS DELIVERED ME UP TO THE PRESENT FROM ALL DANGERS, THEY NEED NOT FOLLOW ME, FOR I WILL GO TO THEM. IN RAISING HIS CAMP, HE MARCHED AGAINST THE SCOTCH TROOPS. It is related that during the night before the battle, being asleep by the side of his horse, the king had two ribs broken by a kick from the animal. This circumstance created a profound sensation throughout the army. It was said that the king was dying through some treachery. Edward donned his armor, mounted his horse, and continued the march. The Scotch army was at length in sight. In front of them was a marsh, and the archers and pikemen were protected by a palisade. When Wallace saw the lances of the enemy glistening in the sun, he called out to his men, I have led you to the dance, now hop if you can. The Scottish infantry violently withstood the shock of the two army corps, led by Bigot Bowen, and the bellicose Bishop of Durham, but the cavalry were terrified on seeing the superior forces of the English and fled in confusion. The pikemen and archers began to give way, the palisades were trampled down and the victory was complete the field of the battle of falkirk was strewn with the corpses of the scottish soldiers when wallace contrived to fall back upon Stirling with the remainder of his army the english followed him there but they found the town burnt wallace had disappeared king edward was desolating the country by fire and sword the inhabitants of the towns were flying at his approach St. Andrew's was deserted when the king set fire to it. The citizens of Perth burnt their own town. Provisions were now scarce. Edward was obliged to retreat towards the end of September 1298, leaving all the north of Scotland in the hands of the patriots who had just constituted a council of the regency, at the head of which was John Comyn. Scarcely had the king crossed the frontier when his enemies threatened Stirling Castle other troubles awaited Edward in England. He had convoked the Parliament at Westminster for the month of March 1299. The barons claimed the fulfillment of his promises, and the ratification of the new liberties added by them to the Magna Charta. The king still delayed, denying the validity of a confirmation made in a foreign country. He experienced, he said, displeasure at finding himself thus pressed to grant a favor against his inclination the barons, however, insisting, the king left London almost secretly and went into the country under pretense of being indisposed. The barons followed him there, renewing their demands. At length the king, wearied of this, sent to the Parliament the required ratification, but with a puerile want of good faith he added to the concessions, so hardly won this little sentence, saving the rights of the crown. The barons, indignant, left london in their turn but to prepare for resistance the king still reckoned upon the devotion of the people of the city he ordered the sheriffs to cause the charter to be read at the cross of saint paul's an immense crowd was assembled hailing with applause each of the clauses which guaranteed the rights of the people but when the reader came to the phrase saving the rights of the crown his voice was drowned by whistling shouting and loud menaces Edward was too shrewd and sagacious to resist the will of the people when expressed in such an unmistakable manner. He convened a fresh parliament, solemnly ratified all the concessions without mentioning the rights of the crown, and nominated a commission of three bishops, three earls, and three barons to prepare a charter limiting the royal forests, which had hitherto been extended at times into private property. The charter was ratified in the year 1300, bohan had just died but bigod was still alive and the victory was definitely assured to the barons in spite of the efforts which the king was still making to deliver himself from a yoke which was insupportable to his haughty character and his ambitious projects the marriage of king edward with margaret of france had taken place as had also his son's betrothal to isabel september 1299 and two little incursions into Scotland had produced no other result than an intervention on the part of Pope Boniface the Eighth. In favor of the Scotch by virtue of the rights which he claimed over that kingdom, although haughtily refusing to recognize this strange pretension, the King of England had three times granted a truce to the insurgents. The third had just expired, when the Treaty of Montreal, made between England and France on the thirtieth of May, thirteen o three, gave up Guyenne to Edward, who abandoned his Flemish allies as Philip the Fair did his Scottish allies. Freed from care on the score of continental affairs, Edward, on the day following the ratification of the treaty, marched into Scotland. He was already at Edinburgh on the 4th of June, and his progress across the northern counties resembled a triumphal march. All the fortresses opened their gates, Buchan Castle alone remained closed. While the English were attacking, Sir Thomas Mall, the governor, was marching up and down the ramparts, with a handkerchief in his hand, wiping off the dust raised by the battering rams. On the twentieth day of the siege he was struck with an arrow, and, when dying, stigmatized the soldiers as cowards, who were asking permission of him to surrender. Scarcely had the valiant champion breathed his last when his castle was given up to the English forces. The king established himself in winter quarters in the abbey of Dunfermline, and it was there that the Scotch barons came to negotiate for peace. Each one had drawn up his own conditions. Wallace had disappeared since the Battle of Falkirk. The noblemen had supplanted him in the government of the country, which he had delivered without their aid. The king caused a proclamation to be made that the outlaw should surrender at discretion. Wallace, however, took no notice. But remained in the mountains. The castle of Stirling now alone offered any resistance. In spite of the injunctions of the Scottish parliament, assembled by Edward, Sir William Oliphant, who commanded it, was compelled to surrender on the twenty sixth of July, thirteen o four. A last blow was about to strike the patriotic party in Scotland. Wallace, betrayed by his friend Monteith, was delivered into the hands of the English in the month of August 1305. King Edward had not the generosity to pardon the proud patriot who had so long resisted him. Wallace had broken no oath, he had never sworn allegiance to King Edward, and he had fought for the independence of his country, but he was nevertheless condemned to suffer a traitor's death. He was executed at Smithfield, on the twenty third of August, and the portions of his dismembered body were sent to different towns in Scotland, where, however, the people were more inclined to treat them as sacred relics than to consider them as emblems of disgrace. Wallace had kindled a fire which was not destined to die out, and it was in vain that Edward had thought to stifle it by severe punishment. Scarcely had the government of Scotland been constituted by a commission of prelates and Scottish barons pursuing their labours in London in conjunction with the English members of Parliament, when a fresh insurrection broke out in Scotland, a new chief presented himself for the cause of independence, one who was destined to achieve the task begun by Wallace, it was Robert Bruce, Earl of Carrick. For a long time Bruce had vacillated between the two parties. Having been engaged during his youth in the service of Edward by his father, he had sworn allegiance, then violated his oath, but finally determined to observe his old professions. After the fall of Beloil. he had proposed to Comyn, surnamed the Red, a powerful Scottish lord and one of his neighbors, that whichever of the two should establish his claim to the crown should bequeath the kingdom to the other as an indemnity. Coman had pretended to accept the bargain, but had secretly warned Edward of the conspiracy. Bruce, who was in England, was about to be arrested, in spite of his kinship to the royal family. He had married Joan of Valence, Edward's cousin, when Gilbert de Clare sent a pair of spurs to him by a messenger. Bruce took the hint and immediately mounted his horse. He did not know what danger threatened him, or who had betrayed him, yet he was careful to conceal his traces. Meeting with a servant of Coman, who was carrying fresh communications to Edward, he the missives and assured himself of Coman's treachery, then hastened back to Scotland. A few days later, on the 10th of February, 1306, these two enemies met at Dumfries, and Bruce called Coman into a chapel of the minorities, in order to demand an explanation of his conduct. They were alone. The dispute became furious. Bruce drew his dagger and struck Coman, who fell upon the steps of the high altar, Pale and agitated, Bruce left the chapel hurriedly. His haggard appearance struck his friends, who were in attendance upon him. "'What have you done?' Fitzpatrick of Colesburn asked him. "'I think I have killed Comyn." You think?' cried Fitzpatrick. "'Then I will make sure of it.' In re-entering the holy place, he struck the wounded man another blow, killed the latter's uncle, Sir Robert Coman, who tried to defend his nephew and returned to Bruce. The little band hurried away at a gallop, Bruce had only one course before him now. He was henceforth an outlaw, and the boldest action became necessary. But the fire was smoldering in all the noble hearts of Scotland. As soon as Bruce raised the standard of independence, some priests and lords gathered around him and boldly crowned him at Scone. On the day of Annunciation, 1306, Scotland had a king. Edward first heard of it at Winchester a few days later. In the eyes of the King of England, Bruce was a rebel, and was, moreover, a man who must be punished for having committed sacrilege. He sent a small army into Scotland under the command of the Earl of Pembroke, and, tired and sick as he was, began to make extensive preparations for marching personally against the insurgents. Prince Edward, his son, was twenty-two years of age, and had not yet been knighted. On the twenty-third of May, during Whitsuntide, the young man, having received his spurs from the hands of his father, conferred the same distinction upon two hundred and seventy young lords, companions of his pleasures, who were about to become his comrades-in-arms. All the company then met at a magnificent banquet. A golden valet was brought upon a table, containing two swans, emblems of constancy and fidelity. Then the king, placing his hand upon their heads, swore to avenge the death of Comyn, and to punish the rebels of Scotland, without sleeping for two nights in the same place, and to start immediately afterwards for Palestine, in order to rescue the Holy Sepulchre. The young men swore the same oath as the king, and the latter made them promise if he should die during the war in Scotland, not to bury his body until the conquest should have been achieved. THE PRINCE IMMEDIATELY AFTERWARDS STARTED FOR THE FRONTIERS WITH HIS COMPANIONS. THE KING FOLLOWED LESS RAPIDLY AS HE COULD ONLY TRAVEL UPON A LITTER. MEANWHILE BRUCE'S FORCES HAD INCREASED RAPIDLY. THE MALCONTENTS, AND THEY WERE VERY NUMEROUS, WERE BEGINNING TO DECLARE THEMSELVES AND TO RALLY AROUND THE NEW KING when the earl of pembroke arrived in scotland the insurgents were in high spirits but a battle was fought on the nineteenth of june near the woods of methen which destroyed their illusions many scots were killed the prisoners were put to death and bruce retired into the mountains of Athol with five hundred men too ill to proceed further king edward had been obliged to stop at carlisle but he was directing all the operations of his troops in ordering the executions of the prisoners thus bearing witness to his deep-rooted resentment against scotland bruce was leading the life of a roaming knight in the forests hunting and fishing accompanied only by a few faithful friends his wife his two sisters and the countess of buchan shared with him his adventurous existence which the fine weather rendered tolerable even in scotland Meanwhile, winter was coming on, and it became necessary to seek more civilized quarters. Bruce's little band was attacked by Lord De Lorne, a relation of Comyns and a mortal enemy of Bruce. The King of Scotland's companions were falling under the battle-axes of Lochebur when he sounded the retreat and, clad in armor and mounted upon a good war-horse, took up his position in a defile and defended the approach single-handed. Lorne's mountaineers hesitated, being terrified at the immovable countenance. The long sword, always on guard, and the bright eyes glistening under the helmet. At length three men, a father and two sons named Macandrossair, famous in their clan for their strength and courage, sprang forward together upon the royal champion. One seized the bridle of the horse, and the arm fell at his side, his hand being severed. Another fastened himself to the leg of the horseman, THE HORSE PRANCED ABOUT, AND THE UNHAPPY WARRIOR HAD HIS HEAD split OPEN BY A SWORD STROKE. THE FATHER, WHO WAS MORE SKILLFUL, AS WELL AS MADDENED AT THE FATE OF HIS SONS, CLUTCHED THE KING'S cloak. HE WAS STILL HOLDING IT AFTER HIS DEATH, AND BRUCE WAS COMPELLED TO LEAVE IN THE HANDS OF THE CORPSE THIS TOKEN OF THE DESPERATE STRUGGLE. THE KING HAD RETREATED WITHOUT BEING WOUNDED, BUT IT WAS NECESSARY TO PLACE HIS WIFE AND SISTERS IN SAFETY, AND THE CASTLE OF KELDRUMMY AFFORDED THEM A SHELTER while Bruce took refuge in the Hebrides. The separation was doomed to be a sad and long one, for the castle was taken, and Nigel Bruce, Robert's younger brother, was cruelly put to death. The Queen of Scotland was sent to England, and Bruce's sisters-in-law, shut up in wooden cages, were exposed to the public sight of Berwick and Broxborough. Every time that any of the adherents of Bruce fell into the hands of the English troops, they were put to death. The king himself, who was now excommunicated and prescribed, had taken refuge in the little island of Ratterin. His retreat was unknown to his enemies, and a reward was offered in Scotland to whoever would give news of Robert Bruce, who was lost, stolen, or strayed. It was in the spring of 1307 that Bruce suddenly reappeared. Supported by some ships which had been lent to him by Christiana, Lady of the Isles, deceived by a false indication, he attacked Henry Percy, to whom King Edward had recently given the castle of Carrick. Bruce's own property in taking his enemies by surprise, he defeated them, causing great slaughter, and returned in triumph to the castle, which, however, he could not hold for any length of time. Surrounded as he was on all sides, not only by the English forces, but by his personal enemies and all the family of Comyn, The capture of Carrick Castle was nevertheless Robert's first step upon the ladder of fortune, but yesterday a fugitive, he was now rejoined by his scattered supporters. After his success, warriors who had previously been undecided embraced the cause of Bruce, whose forces became so formidable that Edward, who was furious, resolved to leave Carlisle to march in person against the rebels. He caused his litter to be hung up in York Cathedral, in memory of his sickness, and was about to mount his horse when he heard that the Earl of Pembroke had been defeated on the 10th of May by Bruce at Loudon Hill. The rage of the king lent him strength for a while. He started out for Carlisle at the head of a large corps. But the journey was cut short, and he was obliged to stop when not more than three leagues from Carlisle death came and chilled the proud heart and the indomitable spirit once animated by the noblest and most chivalrous desires, but for several years absorbed in ambitious projects and cruel schemes of revenge. His last words were a recommendation to his son to finish the task which had been begun, to be good to his young brothers and to maintain three hundred knights in the Holy Land, when he was buried at Westminster, an inscription was placed upon his tomb, covered by a block of stone, brought from Palestine. Eduardus Primus, Edward I, My Scordum, the scourge of the Scots. 1307, Pactum Serva, 1307, Keep the Covenant. Among the sovereigns who had governed England, very few held the power with a firmer hand than Edward I, very few, however, saw the foundation of more liberties. In vain, in 1307, when the king had thought the conquest of Scotland assured, had he hoped to effect his deliverance from the yoke which his people had imposed upon him. In vain had he obtained from the pope a bull on the 4th of January 1305, which relieved him of his oaths and annulled the charters which he had ratified forbidding anyone, under pain of excommunication, to claim their fulfillment. In vain, Bowen being dead, had Edward's threat succeeded in intimidating old Bigod and his faithful ally, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The attitude taken by the entire nation had caused the king to hesitate, and had he not yet made public the papal bull, when the insurrection in Scotland absorbed all his attention and necessitated the assistance of Parliament, the liberties acquired by the barons now had a durable guarantee. The great lords were not obliged to resort incessantly to arms. Parliaments having been instituted, we have seen the deputies of the towns summoned to parliament for the first time by the Earl of Leicester under King Edward I. The barons began to hold their deliberations privately, and the knights from the shires and the deputies from the towns who were summoned less frequently formed a second chamber, from this time dates the origin of the House of Lords and the House of Commons. The most complete Parliament which had yet sat was that of 1295, convened by King Edward before his campaign in Flanders. An ecclesiastical Parliament had been convoked at the same time. The subsidies which were then granted and which the King endeavored to increase by acts of extortion were the cause of the opposition of Big and Bowen. At the death of Edward, the charters had been so firmly established in England that no monarch dreamt of disturbing them again, until the unhappy days of Charles I. The liberties of the nation were assured by the frequent meetings of the parliaments, their faithful and natural guardians. The constitution of England was founded. End of Chapter 10, Part 2. Recording by Voice of Landis, Zanesville. You can find it VoiceofLandis.com.